It's Rainforest Mind with me, Casper Thompson. I'm trying to think of how to introduce this without adding loads of time onto the podcast because you don't really want to listen to the, a long introduction, but I want to say something. So I'm talking to Clark Strand and Petita Finn. They're both writers. Clark's written about spiritual communities, spiritual practice. Petita has written children's books and, among other things, they both at some point in their lives practiced Zen Buddhism and moved away from that to practicing Pure Land Buddhism, which is a, my practice, a more devotional school that recognizes the deeply fallible nature of human beings. And they're now practicing uh, using a rosary, making prayers to the Divine Mother. I was interested in that journey. I was also interested on the emphasis that they have in ecology in their writings and in their spiritual practice. Clark, for example, had talked about moving from spirituality to ecology through his life. So our conversation touched on different types of spiritual communities, on um, what drew them through their journey from their own childhoods as, on the one hand, Christian, on the other hand, atheist, through Zen, Pure Land, other forms of Buddhism, to finishing with the way of the rose, the rosary practice. And along the way, talking about trees, ecology, and, oh, I suppose, all sorts of great things. Anyway, <laughs> all sorts of great things. Anyway, I start by asking uh, them to speak about this journey from Zen to Pure Land to using the rosary. You know, Clark and I both have our separate experiences. Yeah, of course. Um, he's certainly invested more of his youth and energy into Zen than I did, but I was also a Zen student when we met. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think the big shift for us came both that Clark left the monkhood knowing that wasn't a place where he could have a family or a healthy family. Hmm. And I left... <laughs> Zen later when uh, I had two children and I had started a children's program at the local Zen monastery, had sat through sessions through my pregnancies and used to nurse in the Zendo sitting in full lotus. Mm. Um, but people were very resentful of the presence of my children in the community. Okay. And, and it, it was a kind of awakening to me for me that this was not an, a place where either motherhood or children or ordinary life were allowed to kind of it, flourish. I, w I began to realize I wasn't a bonsai tree. I was just an ordinary old tree. <laughs> mm, so the bonsai, there's something what contrived about that, would you say? Or... Well, the thing about a bonsai tree is that if you take a bonsai out of its little planter, and you plant it outdoors in the earth in the right location, it will actually grow into a normal, ordinary tree again. Hmm. And I think that was my experience leaving Zen, and I think it was Clark's experience leaving Zen, was that we really just wanted to be ordinary trees. Hmm. I mean, I, I, left, uh, I left the monkhood in uh, 1990 and i had my own uh, zen center in the city and you know there were a lot of uh you know a lot of factors that 
you know, went into my decision to leave. But at the time, chief among them was the idea that uh, it was very, very difficult to have uh, ordinary relationships, lateral relationships. You know, um, Buddhism uh, has tended uh, throughout its history to stress uh, vertical relationships rather than horizontal relationships. The hierarchy. And, uh, you know, Buddhism is not, as a religion, is not, you know, very well equipped to, uh, to nurture uh, horizontal relationships or even spiritual friendship. You know, the focus mm-hmm. tends to be on the, uh, you know, mentor-disciple, yeah. uh, uh, you know, master or, or, or guru and student-disciple relationship. And so I found that frustrating. And, uh, and I felt, found it also quite a bit forced because, uh, you know, both as a monk and then later as the editor of a Buddhist magazine, Tricycle the Buddhist Review, I saw that, you know, in many cases, the healthiest people in the communities were the people sort of near the bottom and the teachers mm-hmm. were often some of the least health, psychologically mm-hmm. healthy or spiritually advanced or wise uh, uh, people in the community. And that included high lamas, you know, I met you know, I met people who were just, you know, uh, yeah. not, not, uh, I can imagine thugs, you know, <laughs> sort of, sort of thugs. You know? yeah. I met a lot of Tibetan Buddhist thugs that were dressed up in, you know, as high lamas. And uh, by the time I left the magazine, I had pretty much decided that it was, um, you know, it was a case of the emperor's new clothes in many cases, not all, but in a great many cases. And that the religious, uh, sort of hierarchy and one-upsmanship in Buddhism concealed a great deal of dysfunction, especially in America. Yeah. Yeah, something about being at the top that allows you to hide behind the robes and keep yeah. more stuff in your shadow. And I wanted something a lot healthier. I wanted a family. I wanted spiritual friends. I wanted mm. a community where people could relate to one another, get to know one another really well. And, you know, it mm. took a long time to sort of figure out how to get that you mm. know Perdita and me working together you know like trying to crack this nut it, it took us quite a long time i've come up with a kind of shorthand of what i of the two things i i fear the most <laughs> and they are priesthoods of all kinds and all religions <laughs> and property of all kinds mm. e- even the very seemingly best communities can become subservient to their building funds absolutely and and I think that um, the kind of relentless fundraising begins to create all kinds of compromises and inner and outer circles. And yeah, Speak, um, you're speaking to somebody who is a priest and has just uh, okay. spent three and a half thousand pounds on a new roof, or is about to. So I'm very <laughs> aware of the uh, <laughs> of both sides of the, the dangers and uh, it's it's. You know, as I say, we're composting our house, so we're not a very good <laughs> motto. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but I do. But I think what happens is what, what happens when the building or the institution becomes more important than the individuals in the community. Mm. Yeah, that's the and danger point. It's 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 always a day, and there and there and there's certainly communities that solve these problems. You know, you can look at Quaker communities and lots of communities sort of working with this, but it it is. You know, I, I think as Clark and I began to look at a kind of radical response to this moment we're in as a culture, that was that was something that for us personally had, had come to the fore. 
Mm. I will say also that that part of part of our journey, you know, has has been through all these various different traditions. You know, what I was quite frustrated, uh, you know, by the sort of rigid hierarchical uh, structure of Zen and the emphasis on the quote enlightenment of the master. And when I discovered Pure Land Buddhism, uh, not long after I left Tricycle, it came as great relief. And it was by studying Pure Land and Nichiren Buddhism. Uh, as the sort of, you know, two other uh, major schools of Buddhism that flourished in the Kamakura uh, period in Japan, uh, I, I came to realize that there were other models for fellowship mm. uh, that, that weren't quite so rigid and that did stress uh, spiritual friendship and the length mm. of the family and so forth. And that came as a great relief to me. I, uh, much of what I learned that, uh, you know, subsequently became a topic of conversation between me and Perdita and became sort of our game plan for creating the community we have now, you know, came from those early communities that, um, you know, stressed horizontal relationships among, uh, you know, members of equal status. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm holding on. I, I, I'm, I've, I've sort of still holding on to something Padit said about the um, putting the building above the people. So I'll come back to what you said in, in a moment, Clark, which is that there's something in that dynamic, which is a sort of uh, a small example of the whole, di- the dynamic of the whole of society, mm-hmm. which I think is what you were hinting at, that, you know, that our spiritual communities can have the same, sickness that the whole of society has it's i mean it's very very hard i mean clark founded a group just before this sort of in his movement process um it was called excess anonymous (laughs) and it was about how do we become sober from the addiction to civilization Mm. and i mean it was it was an overwhelming question and Mm. And it becomes an, one that's impossible almost to answer inside of this moment we're in. Mm. Um, you know, we all need roofs over our heads. We live in a world, you know, we're not going to yeah. go out and become hunter-gatherers again in, in the natural world we've created for ourselves. So um, so we're all muddling along, <laughs> you know, we're all muddling along with trying to find some answers to all of this. Yeah. Yeah, and and in that muddling along, this to me, there's something important about recognizing that wisdom can come from any part of the community, not just the person at the top. I think I think that's what I have. I I think one of the things I experienced, you know, this community we founded, we used a lot of what Clark had learned in Nietzsche and Buddhism, a lot of what we'd seen in other communities, and particularly kind of in the profoundly radical twelve-step wisdom. Mm. that Bill Wilson had accessed of, you know, how do you create these kind of cell groups that can function, you know, independently of each other, but create friendship. And, and what happens, I think, is that you do begin to experience so much more wisdom than when there is, you know, it's amazing when you sit in a group of 12 people and that includes children and young people and old people and men and women and, people of color and people of different experiences. So much can happen. Yeah. I've, I sort of, 
it's really interesting for me this conversation because I, I'm I kind of straddle both of those positions in in being the leader of a spiritual co-leader of a spiritual community where there is a shallow hierarchy not a steep hierarchy but the the you know that there is there is a role I play as teacher and also on a Saturday night those of us that want to come together and sit in a circle and there's no hierarchy and for me that's one of the most important spaces that we hold in the community you know i had a uh, sort of an informal conversation with the dean of uh, uh saint jo- the cathedral of saint john the divine in uh, manhattan which is an episcopal cathedral i don't know maybe uh six or seven years ago and i i'd gone in to uh <clears throat> consult with them and basically try to share with them some of the things I learned from uh, studying uh, Pure Land and Nishiran Buddhism, specifically the Soko Gakkai, because they were Episcopal churches in a great deal of trouble. Mm. But they're losing their money, they're losing their members, nobody wants to come anymore. You know, they're sort of dissolving, you know, as a, yeah. like a lot of other sort of mainstream Christian denominations in America for just sort of lack of interest. And they can't keep people engaged. And it's this pulpit to pew sort of model that's killing it. Hmm. So anyway, I went in and, and talked to them and, you know, I sort of made my case and you know, I was speaking to the entire diocese of, of uh, you know, Manhattan. There was everybody in there. There was the CFO and, you know, the Dean and various people. And two things came out of that. One was that after everybody had left, the CFO, who's also a priest, you know, stayed behind. And he said, they're not going to do any of the things you recommended. But yeah. between you and me, I understand what you're saying. And yes, that's the problem. Hmm. There's no participation. There's no involvement. There's no you know, sense that people are sort of in charge of their own spiritual lives. Hmm. So I guess a week or so after that, I had a conversation with the dean of the cathedral. You know, another sort of off the books, you know, after the meeting, kind of off the record meeting and he said well you know if i want to experience real spirituality i don't go into the cathedral i go into the basement area where the 12-step meetings are going on (laughs) yeah yeah and that people who are in it to win it you know these are people who are struggling with real life issues and bearing their souls to one another and and you know receiving support and fellowship but not being sort of told what to do just you know supporting one another and it's in those circles rather than in those sort of, you know, linear vertical hierarchies that the real sort of lifeblood of, mm. of uh, modern spirituality lives, I think. So. Yeah. I think real, oh, sorry, go on, Petita. You know, a re, an enormous transition for Clark and for me was reading the writings of Shinran mm. and oh, yeah. really beginning to kind of look at our own brokenness and mm. our own, what, you know, the word we, you know, it's such a complicated word in English, but the word, you know, our sinfulness, our evil, you know, yeah. being the evil person. But that is the kind of wisdom of the 12 steps. Yeah. yeah. And oh, yeah. seeing the correspondence that it's not about this, this mastery or this achievement. It's really just about, and how do we let ourselves break open mm. with each other and for each other? Yeah. Step one. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Richard Raw suggests that the 12 steps are America's greatest contribution to spirituality. And I think, I, you know, I would, I would have to agree. I'm, I'm about to write a book right now. I've been researching for years 
on the similarity between the uh, Soka Gakkai, which started in uh, Tokyo <clears throat> in the 1930s as, re as a reaction to fascism and militarism, mm. and the 12-step movement, which originated in Manhattan as a response to, you know, the, the sort of implosion of capitalism during the Great Depression. Mm. And both groups came up with the same solution, which was to eliminate religious hierarchy and replace it with uh, a, a circle of friends uh, who supported one another, uh, you know, didn't put their effort into fundraising or into building or infrastructure or anything like that, but put it into, uh, you know, the actual members themselves who, mm. who supported one another and, uh, you know, met together in, in order to, to tackle their, their common problems. So Gakkai is a little different, you know, they do have assets, they do have money, yeah, sure. uh, but they, but their, their, their model of meeting is basically a discussion group model, same as AA. Yeah, it's and a home, uh, home both of these organizations came up with, with, uh, you know, the same solution to the problems of modernity. Hmm. It was interesting at one point, Clark and I said, how do you get the kind of, meditative joy we experienced in Zen with the kind of mantric surrender from Shin and the discussion model from Nichiren Buddhism. <laughs> that was sort of what, how do we blend all these together? That was a question we had at one point. And did you find an answer? We did. We did. Um, that, that's a leap. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. What we have found is an answer that really takes us back to um, a place we never imagined we would go. <laughs> you know, we have a, we have a rosary fellowship, which I think you, you have uh, uh, joined online um, mm. and uh, way of the rose. And it's, it started here in Woodstock in 2011 and it was it was part of an evolution. We had had a Thursday night discussion group for that started in January of 2000. So it had already been going for almost a dozen years by the time it it, it uh, transformed into Way of the Rose and the Rosary group that it is today. So it had been through a number of different iterations. Mm. In, in the beginning, it was a group called Koans of the Bible, mm. and uh, you know, we got together every Thursday night. In the beginning, there were like 50 people. You know, it was a huge discussion group, big, big circle. We had to rent the biggest gallery in town in order to have a room big enough for a circle that large. And we would uh, discuss a passage from the Bible, and the only two rules were you got to question anything, but you get, didn't get to throw anything out. So that created a very sort of freewheeling, open-ended sort of discussion where there were no right religious answers, you know, uh, we used to joke that it was like, you know, locking a uh, fundamentalist and a uh, post-structuralist feminist literary critic in a room together <laughs> and, and, and telling them they couldn't come out until they had managed to have a constructive discussion. So it was really interesting, but it didn't really go anywhere spiritually people you know sometimes people said oh wow i've decided you know i am a jew after all they would go back to synagogue or mm. somebody would decide well i'm really an atheist but i love the bible as literature so they would they would people would sort of like you know get someplace as a result of doing this but it didn't ultimately sort of transform people's lives mm. eventually what we discovered was that we we needed a, 
we needed a, a, a practice that allowed us to share our hearts with one another. Yeah, not just And minds. that the only way to do that was through prayer and through mantric repetition. We had to have this sort of chanting practice like uh, Nembutsu or, or uh, Daimoku. We found that in the rosary. But we also needed a petitionary prayer practice that really allowed people to talk honestly about what was really going on in their lives, what their problems were, what their hopes were, their dreams, their fears. And that's when things really began to break open and, and we began to form really, really close, intimate spiritual friendships. Mm. And Have you got uh, a history and, with the rosary before then or where can you can you recall where that came where that came from <laughs> you know honestly if we had to be totally honest i think it is the surprise of lifetimes um <laughs> i grew up uh in an artistic radically atheistic bohemian family with no religious inclinations at all and clark grew up as a southern presbyterian which he abandoned at age you know 18 to flee to zen Mm. Um, I would not, neither of us would have imagined ourselves um, praying what a lot of people think of as a pious, conventional Catholic prayer. Yeah. Mm. But it turns out, and you know, Clark and I love exploring these religious practices. Um, that in fact, the rosary is a little weirder and a little more interesting. You know, every religion has a bead practice. Mm. and um, those bead practices often lead you back through the labyrinth of time, back to very, very old spiritual traditions, most of them much, much older than religion itself. Mm. And, um, and Clark had been very interested in bead practices. He'd, he'd had some experiences that had led him to sort of look at rosaries and malas and mantric worry beads and, you know, the Teflon and Judaism, that they're all these very tactile spiritual traditions. Mm. Um, something, that you do with your, something that you do with your body and your voice. Right. And your hands. And your hands, yeah. And it's very interesting that um, I discovered, and I did not know how to explain this to anyone as an ex-Buddhist, you know, <laughs> former this and that, I started praying the rosary and when Clark was doing koans of the Bible, this sort of series of Zen koans. Mm. And, but I found it as a, the truth was it was so easy to do with my children who were very young mm. and it became a way that I put them to bed at night yeah. and it, you know, that I would hold on to the rosary beads and I felt, you know, I, I was taking care of dying parents, mm. um, mentally ill family members and young children and it felt really good to have something to hold on to mm. something. Um, and my kids held on to me, but I needed something to hold on to. Yeah. Something tangible, really tangible. Yeah. And it became that for me. And I didn't know how to explain it to other people. You know, you know, I'm, I am not a Catholic. I am not, yeah. not even a Christian. And yet there is something happening for me with this experience that involves mantra a kind of koan-like mystery visualization practice, um, and a very tangible, earthy mother. <laughs> when you when you described that experience, um, uh, I got goosebumps. You know that mm -hmm. my hair stood on end. Mm -hmm. There seemed something very, both alive and true in what you described. Somehow, 
Well, it's our first instinct as animals and babies. The first thing we do when we're born is we hold on. Yeah. And we hold on to our mothers. And if you look at medieval statues of the Madonnas or statues of Isis, those babies are holding on to those mamas. They're mm. holding on to their robes, their hair, their nipples, their hands. Yeah. And our desire, you know, as animals is to held, to be held and to hold on. And there's a lot of talk about letting go, you know, because the truth is, as modern people, we're clutching at everything else. You know, we're clutching at addictions and shopping and food and technology and belief systems and yeah. and and i think slowly what we began to realize is if we can really feel ourselves held by the earth not as an idea but as a very lived reality mm. there are a lot of things we can let go of yeah and that isn't as you say that isn't that's not something it's not a visualization practice it's not something it's out there or transcendent it's Mm-mm. go outside and put your bare feet on the earth and touch the bark of a tree and hold somebody else's real hand while you're doing it. Exactly. Mm. And it's what we're really, really missing. You know, they, they discover, you know, if you go walk dirt, barefoot in the dirt, it does more for you than most antidepressive medication. Mm. Yeah. And I was reading recently that trees uh, naturally give off these aer- aerosols, which are healing to, yes. uh, to most animals, including humans. The, the more trees there are in a place, the less violence there is. Yeah, and I'm not at all surprised by that. Yeah, these things are so important. I'm, a ver- I'm very passionate about trees, so I'll, be, <laughs> I'll try to keep myself under wraps. <laughs> sure, yeah. I just finished reading The Man Who Planted Trees, which not not the sort of... Uh, oh. Not the, not the little slim book about the guy that creates a forest, but it's a story about somebody... It's not a story. It's a it's a, a nonfiction book about an American who David Millard. David Millard, exactly. we know him. Yeah. He's a friend of ours. Is he? Wow. Yes. <laughs> I, I found, it was. It, I found that very inspiring to read about. We we had the same. He's we marvelous. Had the same, we had the same editor actually, and she's on his board of the Archangel Tree Project and all that. But yeah. Yeah. So he's a he's a. He's a uh, He's an amazing guy. I love that book, but you know, he's even wilder than the book lets you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I, there's, there's hints of that in the book, I think. Yeah. But you know, and, and even, you know, we're talking about all these, you know, will we come up with some carbon sequestration plan? You know, what technology will save us? And the truth is planting trees is what will save us. Yeah. And kelp, apparently. Yeah. Trees yeah. and kelp forests. Yeah, and people are starting to do that around the yeah. world. You know, the, the Indian Army has been, was in this, over the summer, was requisitioned to plant however many hundreds of thousands of trees. And right. yeah, but it's, it's beginning to catch on in certain places. David says if every person just planted seven trees every year, the whole world would change. Mm. Yeah, simple and powerful and, and sad that, so many people aren't in a place where they can can imagine doing that right exactly mm. well one one of the interesting things about the rosary and all these bead practices which Perdita alluded to is this idea that if you if you go back far enough 
if you take any of these bead practices, like in Buddhism and Hinduism and in uh, uh, Islam and uh, Christianity, certainly, and you go back far enough, you basically come to the same ritual, which seems to have been a big part of, of uh, Paleolithic devotion to the Great Mother. And it involved weaving a chaplet of flowers to offer to a god or goddess in the beginning to the goddesses because there were no male gods uh, in the Paleolithic. All the figurines that have come down to us from that period of time are all female. So mm. there's this devotion to this great mother whose body was identified with the body of the earth mm. and its processes of birth, uh, 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 generation, death, decay, and rebirth. And uh, people apparently were already, you know, six, seven, eight, nine thousand years ago, weaving these uh, chaplets of flowers in the West, mostly roses, uh, sometimes in India, hibiscuses or various other flowers. And they were weaving them into a chaplet uh, in order to offer to a, a uh, figure uh, of a god or goddess. And sometimes, you know, a, a person would stand in, like a young girl. Mm. Mm. And uh, so they were weaving these flowers. There's some thought, actually, that this precedes even the use of prayers and mantras, that the original prayers were the flowers themselves. Yeah. Uh, that this was a, a uh, you know, a nonverbal kind of offering. But eventually, you know, so this practice was passed down. And by the time we get to, like, you know, figures like Isis and Inanna, it's become highly ritualized. This is a big, big part of the yearly celebrations to these goddesses is to weave these chaplets of roses and offer them. So that by the time you get to Christianity and the Virgin Mary, this is a very, very old practice that's been done every spring for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. And then they come in and they say, well, this is the Virgin Mary and she's really not a goddess. She's the mother of God because she's the mother of Jesus and so forth and so on. But it's really just a kind of a shell game. They're just, they're trying to get rid of the great mother. They're yeah. trying to can't, right? She and that's striking, isn't it? That transition. Yeah. yeah. And the, the it like just that. goes underground, you know, and yeah. people preserve their devotion to her. So there's this great little legend that sort of encapsulates most of what you really need to know about the rosary, where it comes from and why people like Perdita and I, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, thousand or so other sort of eco-feminist leaning <laughs> people on whether the rose would want to pray it. And it goes like this. There was once a young, pious young lad who had a custom of weaving a chaplet of roses every day to offer to the statue of the Virgin Mary in his village church. Seeing his devotion, the Virgin gave him the desire to become a monk. So he goes to the monastery. As soon as he gets to the monastery, they say, no, we've got all these rules and you're going to be really, really busy. And you're not going to have any time to do this. And yeah, beyond that, it's really kind of forbidden. Mm. So he's not allowed to do this beautiful, simple practice that's inspired him throughout his boyhood. Yeah. So he's so upset by this, he decides to leave, right? He's going to go back to the fields near his village church. He's going to weave his flowers. He's going to be doing this simple ritual, just like his people have been doing on the same piece of land for thousands of years. But just as he's leaving the church, the Virgin Mary appears to him in, a, in an apparition, and she says, no, don't leave, because I'm going to teach you how to make uh, a chaplet of roses for me out of your prayers. 
Hmm. And she teaches him to, to replace the, uh, the flowers with Hail Marys. So he starts to do this. And for every Hail Mary, a flower comes out of his mouth. And the Virgin <laughs> takes each of these roses and she weaves them into a crown for her head. She says, see, it works. Mm. <laughs> so this was a legend that was repeated all across uh, Europe. Like it, it, we don't know where it originated, but it exists in multiple forms. Sometimes, mm. you know, it's a little different here or there. Sometimes the, you know, the, an angel is present. Sometimes the novice master, you know, sees the roses coming from the boy's mouth and asks what happened, so forth and so on. But the basic idea is the same, is that these flowers become prayers, which become flowers once again. Mm. And so there's this reconnection with the great mother and with the earth. And so the rosary becomes a way, it becomes kind of like a stowaway inside of the church where yeah. these teachings, these very ancient teachings are preserved and, 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 and held intact so that they can be passed on down through the centuries. So that by the time we get to the 21st century, we have this practice that has these male and female prayers, our fathers and Hail Mary. So they reenact this sort of primal divine union between male and female forces. And it follows this pattern of birth, the joyful mysteries, sorrow, the mysteries of the crucifixion, and uh, resurrection, the, the, the glorious mysteries. So it follows this same kind of seasonal ecological pattern. Mm. It's just wedded to this practice and uh, you know and it's smuggled for centuries down you know down through the centuries right under the nose of the catholic church mm. i think for me it was really it, it was also a kind of revelation you know i'd been involved in zen which you know the great patriarchs and the, their lineage yeah um and psychoanalysis and and you know a lot of very male dis you know disciplines and i had not sought out you know wicca and <laughs> other <laughs> kinds of um experiences more feminine experiences mm. but what was so interesting about the rosary for me was i suddenly realized it allowed me a connection with my own ancestors who come from france and england and germany and ireland and i realized you know these this is these were the prayers my grandmothers and great grandmothers and fathers were doing Mm. And I began to realize that they had been doing it and they had been weaving these knowledges and these memories that they were forbidden to hold on to anymore. Um, you know, they had been weaving these prayers. They were like spells. You know, when someone once you know, said, what's the difference between a spell and a prayer? Well, absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, we call sure. them mantras or we use these words. But yeah. Yeah. what they really were were actually prayers of, of women. Mm. Um, to the goddess yeah and to keep that feminine tradition alive they had to hide it in plain sight yeah mm. um and so that was it was a it was a very sort of profound ancestral reconnection um one of the things that's really interesting too is that bead practices are a lot like once you you know if you've ever done a bead practice or by the way i used to do the often do the nembutsu with my rosary <laughs> it's just yeah yeah weaves with it so beautifully um and i you know we have we have people in way of the rose who do prayers to kali and sanskrit along with their rosary it seems it's a kind of very hardy rootstock on which you can graft 
any number of other devotions and prayers that you're called to for one reason or another. Mm. And, and there's something kind of, I often like to say that, you know, what we need now of are more kind of forest ecologies rather than monotheistic monocultures. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you often talk about the fact that, that bead practices are connected to uh, gathering practices, yeah. right? Whereas meditative practices are more like, Hunter practice. Meditative practices most likely grew out of hunting behaviors. You know, you have to be very still, you have to be focused, you have to be quiet, in control of your breathing. Makes sense. Aware, ready to act at the right moment. And bead practices, in all likelihood, grew out of the collecting of berries and nuts and seeds. Mm. Yeah, it's a different Which, kind of awareness, more expansive, more connected to the ground. A lot of sacred chit chat, and the truth is, both both behaviors keep a community alive. Yeah, and what's interesting in that analogy is that my understanding now is that most of uh, sort of uh, when we were hunter gatherers, most of the time was spent gathering. Yes, <laughs> very little, of it, and a little bit now and again was spent hunting. And somehow, yeah, in this day and age, time was spent diverse. chatting. And some, some time was spent in, in still ready silence, but more time was spent chatting. <laughs> yeah, I well, call, we had a lot more free time back then. <laughs> I call it sacred chit-chat. Yeah. And the value of lost, you know, um, you know, it's not that one is better than the other, and both are really essential. You know, anyone who's done any meditative practices, you know, knows their deep value. Um, but our, our rosary meetings are quite chatty. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I always say the cup of tea after the service is just as important <laughs> as the service itself. It is. I mean, we for a little while, when the children were little, we went to our local Episcopal church, you know. Mm. I, I was always would find myself in the back room with the children, whether it was the Zen Center or the Episcopal church, I was always in the back room with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I always said that's sort of where the juice was happening because the kids had a thousand questions and, you know, yeah, wanted to talk about everything. And Great. So the basements, the back rooms. The kitchens yeah. often, I find. The kitchen, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, who is, what is that great uh, Zen book, Kitchen Table Zen? Or, mm. It wasn't Zen book. Kitchen Table was Naomi Revan. Naomi Revan, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, well, we what we did was we um, we combined the tea and the service. <laughs> so <laughs> wise. Uh, yep. they're the same. They're the same event. So, like you know, for instance, at one of our Way of the Rose meetings, it typically whether it's you know a phone meeting or or uh, you know a face to face meeting, we get together. Everybody sort of arrives in a five or ten minute period, and. Then we, uh, you know, we evoke the presence of Our Lady by, you know, whatever name people want to call her. And, you know, that can take, take a lot of different forms. Somebody will say, you know, Pablo Kitishvara, or other person will say Our Lady of uh, Lords or Rokumador or whatever. You know, people have a variety of different sort of approaches to yeah, the many different places. Then we have, a, we have these little egg timers little with sand in them that last three minutes, you know, so that, you know, we, we have to sort of stay a little bit focused, but we just basically catch up. We pass mm. it around. Everybody talks for three minutes and mm. that's what they're praying for. You know, what's going on in their lives. Then we pray the pass the hat to collect the, our $15 rent. 
Because <laughs> we meet in the church basement like, you know, like all the 12-step yeah. groups. Yeah. Then we say the rosary and we offer our petitions mm. and after we pray the rosary together. So there's this period of about 20-minute long period of mantric practice that we're all saying together. Mm. And we take turns announcing the different mysteries. So there, no, there really aren't any leaders or anything. No, although the structure behaves as a leader, I guess. That's it. The, the mm. rosary itself is, is uh, you know, provides that structure. So we don't mm. really have to do anything. It's like a script at a 12-step meeting. You know, yeah, in, in the meeting, the, the, uh, the steps are the leader and the That's traditions right. are the leader. That's exactly right. We don't have 12 steps. We have the 15 mysteries. So, yeah. so we go through those, uh, you know, five at a time, depending on the day. And, and then we, we make our petitions. And then we, Perdita has been doing this ancestor practice uh, for a long time. And uh, we didn't have it in the beginning of our rosary group. But then something, I don't know, some little bit of magic happened when she sort of married, that was sort of like the final piece, as it were, to our, our rosary group. And so we speak the names of the dead, and then we say a last uh, final decade of when our father and ten hail Marys for the dead, mm. and then the meeting's over. Mm. So this is about an hour. Yeah, a real synthesis of community, of practicing together, yeah, and, uh, praying together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I, think, I think it's just a place where people... I think I, where people can feel broken. It's bro- we we live in very broken times. Yeah, and 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 none of us really know what to do faced with the enormity of the chaos around us. I, I mean, in, in all honesty, we just don't. <laughs> I, mean, well, that's, I think that's true most of the time, isn't it? <laughs> and it's important to have a place just to be vulnerable and exposed and and feel held as. Somebody I mean, who's broken. I think Shin at, at its truest is. I think that that spirit of Shin really captured that aspect mm. so beautifully for me. I mean, yeah. I, I think. Uh, well, I don't think I would be I, honestly. I, I don't think I would be praying the rosary. You might have been able to do it. You were already doing it early. I on. was before you. Yeah. Before you got to. Shin. I don't think I would have been able to pray the rosary without without a sojourn of ten years through through uh, Pure Land Buddhism. I just don't think I could have gotten there. Mm-hmm. Because I that... gotten there as a Christian, I had a you know a Protestant sort of you know not a fundamentalist upbringing, but nevertheless an oppressive Christian mm-hmm. upbringing. Uh, yeah. and I think Southern Protestantism in general is, is an oppressive approach to religion. I mean, I find it that way anyway. Yeah. But I don't think I could have prayed um, the rosary. I could certainly couldn't have said the word sinners in the Hail Mary uh, with any real conviction. And mm. I got there through Shin and through 12-step work. Yeah. And, but, but that, you know, that was an essential part of my you know, spiritual passage. Yeah. Spiritual practice has to include what feels like going into the dark. Or willingness to yeah. go into the dark. Yeah. You know. A member of our group, I think he must have gotten it from, um, we, you know, various members of our group have practiced, uh, uh, you know, Jodo Shinshu Buddhism over the years. And um, I think he must have gotten this from a Shin priest somewhere, but he, he used to always say that when you face the light, your own shadow is invisible to you. Hmm. Yeah. But when you face your shadow... And people look at you, they see a halo. 
Yeah, interesting. I thought that was a very beautiful way of describing what happens to you spiritually when you're willing to to acknowledge your own sadness or your own darkness or your mm. own potential for evil. Yeah, Dharma Vidya, my teacher, uses the analogy of when you're in a, a room and you turn the light off, that's when people outside can see the moonlight reflected in the window. Mm. Ah, right. Beautiful. I love Beautiful. that. Yeah. So my thanks to Clark and Padita. What a great conversation. I did wonder about splitting this into two for the time, but hey, I thought it was good enough to leave as well, then you can always pause it. Though, of course, if you've got this far, you've already listened to the whole thing. Um, Do subscribe to Rainforest Minds on iTunes or Stitcher. Like the Facebook page. Leave me a comment. Love to get feedback. And look out for another episode coming soon. Oh, and you can find old episodes at casperthompson.co.uk. Thanks again.